This is Unbounded, a podcast from CrossBoundary about business leaders overcoming extraordinary challenges in underserved markets. Each episode, we speak to a different entrepreneur or investor about how they are building businesses in markets that are often overlooked. Hi. I'm Nathan Kelly, and I'm the head of corporate development and agriculture group co-lead for CrossBoundary. This week, we're speaking to Sammy Teleton on how farmers and ranchers are often underserved when it comes to financial services and how the business she and her co-founders started works to overcome that. After a year and a half in business, FarmRaise has just completed a successful $7.2 million seed round led by Sousa Ventures to scale their solution. Included in the round were fintech investors, impact investors, a slate of founders and operators, and some well-known farmers. I had the incredible opportunity to spend four months working at FarmRaise at the beginning of 2021 and learned so much from Sammy and the rest of the team about the realities of farming in the U.S. and why the seemingly simple act of simplifying the farm funding process is so important for driving profitability and soil health on the farm. Sammy, I'm so excited to have you on the show today because you and I share a deep passion for soil health and agriculture in America. But before we get to all that, can you tell us a little bit about your background in agriculture and your journey from USDA to the fintech space? Absolutely. So I didn't grow up around agriculture, and it's still such a fun and cool thing to know that I've made my way to the sector and um, can't imagine working anywhere else. So I grew up in southern Missouri in the Ozarks, and I spent my summers exploring the landscapes there, the lakes, the rivers, the hilly Ozark mountains, as we call them (laughs) down there, uh, even though they definitely aren't the Rockies. And that really instilled within me a deep appreciation for land use, land management, and natural resources. So I took that with me to college at the University of Missouri, where I chose to study biological engineering. And I thought I would use that degree to go into the renewable energy sector and work on scaling up renewable energy systems across the U.S. But ultimately, I was pulled throughout my undergraduate tenure towards farming. I actually, my, you know, my job through college was hauling food waste from dining halls, 1,000 pounds of food waste each week out to the research farm and composting it. And so that really helped me learn about compost, soil systems, and sort of the cycle in the food system of food being produced and then converted into resources we all consume and sometimes waste, and then how you can make the most of that waste by composting it or recycling it. And then I worked on a farm in Costa Rica during undergrad as well, where I had the privilege to learn from the owners of the farm about the power of soil carbon sequestration to help mitigate climate change and also drive a ton of benefits for ecosystems and for farms. And that really piqued my interest and led me down the path to start working at the USDA. I accepted a role after college doing research and education for the USDA's Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, where I had the opportunity to learn directly from scientists and farmers about the impacts of soil health systems on the environment and also on farm profitability and farm economics. But 
there's a huge gap in adoption. So a really interesting thing that I learned from my time at the USDA was that only 5% of U.S. cropland acres are planted using the best soil health practices out there. And that we have this immense opportunity to drive greater adoption of the practices. But the biggest challenge that farmers face in doing this and implementing these practices is access to finance that um, will help de-risk the adoption of those practices because farmers do have to make an initial investment just like any business does when they're investing in research and development or new systems. There's an initial investment to realizing a benefit of that practice. And so farmers are looking for help and are barred in many situations from easy access to funding to help de-risk that investment. And so that ultimately drove me to study business and land use and agriculture in graduate school, where I explored this issue further through my studies and also through internship opportunities. And then I met my co-founder, Jace, in graduate school, who grew up on a farm, and her family actually had taken advantage of grant funding to adopt a better grazing management system and save thousands of dollars in feed costs from doing that. And so she and I both cared a lot about this issue and decided to start FarmRace to help farmers access funding to enable transitions like this. Yeah, you and I have talked about this before, um, but you had a few different options coming out of Stanford for making an impact in the ag space. You could have gone to the sustainability arm of a big ag group, you could have gone to an investment firm focused on the space. Yeah, can you tell us why you chose to start FarmRace over those things? That's a great question, and one I spent lots of time thinking about. Um, Ultimately, there were two things that were at play for me when I made the decision to go with FarmRace and work with Jace to build out the company. The first was that entrepreneurship was really scary to me until I had someone else with me. I don't think I could have built this alone, nor would I have gone down the path unless I had had someone I believed in and wanted to build with there. I admire people who start things on their own. It is not a path that I um, that I could take. And so meeting Jace was really the catalyst. And I had been, I took all of the entrepreneurship courses I could in grad school. I'd been interviewing farmers in my free time. I spent four weeks in the summer between my first and second year of grad school driving alone around the Midwest, um, going to speak with farmers. And it was good to have someone else there. So finding a co-founder who had the passion that I had and wanted to solve this problem was a really big catalyst. The second thing was that as I weighed my options, I noticed that that I just had some doubts about the other two paths going into investing in the space or uh, working at a large agribusiness company, I had some doubts about the ability to really drive impact in those jobs and settings. And uh, no doubt those settings are good for driving larger impact, for being a thought leader, for you know touching lots and lots of land and farmers. But the it felt like the marginal impact or the you know per farm impact you would have, there would be much less than if I were to start from the ground up working with farmers to build a company. And I'm more attracted to those types of jobs and situations in which 
I'm operating and I can really, really feel the per farmer impact of what I'm doing. That's amazing. And I think a good lead into my next question. You, uh, you recently said to me uh, when I was testing an idea for an ag data platform, quote, I always lean towards the sooner the better to talk to farmers. Can you explain what you meant by that and how that attitude has informed what you all have built at FarmRaise? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely am fully, I'm fully bought into that approach. And the reason is that it's, it's good to be thoughtful and put intention and research and time behind ideas. But ultimately, especially if that, if whatever you're cooking up is going to benefit um, a stakeholder group. I think it's important to get in with that stakeholder group at the very outset when the idea is early to get feedback, to hear what questions your idea poses for them. And ultimately the feedback you get from that will help you shape something that is much more impactful than anything you spend, you know, alone time thinking up on in isolation of the stakeholder. Uh, this is part of the lean development approach to building a company where you don't come up with a solution first. You instead um, spend a lot of time doing need finding with your customer group or your target group. And then you build from the problem they identify, you build some prototypes that are very rough, probably embarrassing, right? <laughs> and then you share them with the stakeholder group, get that feedback and, and keep improving it from there. And it helps you save your own time and money because you're not wasting it on a solution that maybe no one wants. And it also um, makes sure that you're actually building a really true solution to the problem that you're your customers facing. Um, and so at FarmRaise, that's the approach that we've taken. We, when we first started the company, um, we, it was November, 2019. We went to an organic growers conference in Minnesota. I walked around with my iPhone and a picture on the iPhone of what we were building and what it could look like. It was this idea of an eligibility quiz that matches you with funding and then you can apply I showed it to farmers, talked to 15 farmers there in, in one or two days, and I got a lot of feedback on that. Um, and then we used that to help build out the platform that you see today. And we've gone through so many different iterations of the platform. Anytime we are thinking of a new feature, we take that to the customer first and ask for their perspective. Um, and so... That's part of one of our core values is farmer obsession. Um, and we we try to stick with that where the farmer's needs and problems are the things that drive what we do as a business, uh, not anything else. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think completely aligns with Cross Boundaries experience in building things, especially for underserved or new markets. I think back to when Cross Boundary started our commercial and industrial solar vehicle, there were similar vehicles being built in the space, uh, but with a lot more capital. We were proposing a $10 million fund and they were proposing $100 million or $200 million funds. And we honestly were were very surprised because we, <laughs> we didn't know uh, it was a new space. So we didn't, we were surprised people felt like they could invest that much in, in a new or nascent space, we felt like there was a lot of things, there were a lot of things to figure out. And so we took the approach of having a pilot vehicle 
doing some small projects, trying to figure out uh, what was actually needed. And we, we changed our model, yeah, a, a few different times to what we ended up today. And the, those other funds have actually gone away, weren't actually successful, whereas we've, we've been able to scale up over time. That's awesome. Such a great example of that working. Yeah, I think it is critical. I think it is such a critical perspective. Yeah, I guess it's shifting, shifting gears a little bit. So Cross Boundary, as you know, uh, has a focus on underserved markets. And, and many of our listeners are, are used to hearing us talk about opportunities in fragile states and frontier and emerging markets. Obviously, the U.S. agriculture sector has some differences to those markets. But in what ways do you find U.S. farmers underserved from a financial services perspective? That's a great question. And there are a couple ways this shakes out. So I would say generally, U.S. farmers are often given two options for funding, loans and grants or federal, federal dollars, whether that's grants or easements and things like that. So they have a range of options available to them. Much of that has not yet been digitized. And that means that farmers are having a lot of kitchen table conversations where they're sitting down with their lender or with their USDA county representative, and they're filling out paperwork, financial statements by hand. Um, You'll often hear folks that work with farmers talk about these kitchen table conversations and talk about the shoebox of receipts (laughs) that farmers keep because their records are paper, um, not digital. This is kind of surprising. Um, I think that non-farmers typically have an impression that farmers are not very tech savvy, but that's not true at all. Farmers were some of the earliest adopters of technology in the form of uh, their equipment, the things that they're using to farm, mapping, geospatial technology, etc. And farmers are big equipment tinkerers generally. You know, you're getting into farming because it's a family tradition or because you genuinely love science, biology, systems, and making things work. And so that's generally true, except for finance and sort of the the accounting, the tax prep, the applying for and managing funding piece of farming has not yet been fully digitized. So in terms of simple solutions that are more time efficient and easier to act on and understand on the finance side of things, farmers are underserved. There's also, this is a separate issue, people who are farming differently or look differently in the agriculture sector have historically been underserved when it comes to access to funding. And that goes for people who are adopting soil health systems. You know, until recently, it's been really difficult to get a loan for for things like cover cropping or transitioning to a soil health system. You can't get a lender to underwrite that. There are some cool new things happening that are still pretty nascent but are available now that are private solutions that help farmers get capital for soil health systems, but they're they're just starting to come out. And so historically, it's been really difficult for farmers to get traditional capital for these practices. And then there's this other issue of land access and um, access to finance and even government funding by people of color and historically underserved farmers. And so that is still a really relevant challenge today. And one that as we think about farm raise, we're really excited about, okay, if we can help farmers get all of their materials together to apply for funding and 
prepare that application ahead of it being submitted to the funder, can we somehow introduce this level of protection for people who would have been discriminated against because they needed to use their local funder to help them prepare the materials? They don't have to do that anymore with FarmRaise. We help prepare the materials, get them into a good standard where that application could, you know, would go through and there's no risk of being rejected based on some unknown bias in the system. So that's something we're looking at here as well. The last thing I'll say on this front is just how capital intensive farming is. You need money to do everything, to buy the land or rent it. And that's really expensive to get your equipment, um, to expand, to buy your inputs. And so the importance of making finance more accessible for farmers is that it's the lifeblood of their operation and they're not able to um, generate any income from the farm unless they're able to invest in the core things that enable them to produce their crop or raise their livestock. Um, yeah, I love all of those those roles that farm raise plays uh, in the market and, and bridging the gap between capital providers, whether those be public dollars or, or commercial capital providers and farmers. I'm very keen to to hear uh, your perspective on the investors that you've recently attracted into your seed round. It's a very diverse group. You have fintech investors, Im more impact investors. Uh, you have some entrepreneurs slash operators, and importantly, uh, some very well-known farmers. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that consortium of investors and why you think it appealed to all those different groups? Absolutely. Such a fun question to answer. You know, one of the things that we've seen at FarmRaise when recruiting investors or employees is that people gravitate towards FarmRaise if they've been impacted by agriculture in some way. And everyone eats. And so ultimately, everyone is impacted by agriculture. So there's a wide network of people who are excited about this solution. Um, whether it's because they came from a farming family or they're passionate about food system resilience and sustainability. And so in terms of the investors that we've lined up and currently work with, we have recruited a few different types of entities. One is the farmer themselves. And the reason this is so important is I talked about how we're farmer obsessed and we really like to get farmer feedback um, before we do anything significant as a business. Having farmers on the cap table who actually have an ownership stake in farm raise is our way of walking the talk. You know, having those people influencing the company, owning the company, and really sharing in it is a sign to us that we're on the right track and that we have built in some governance systems that hold us to the farmer obsession and ensure that we won't get too far away from the customer. And for those farmers, it's exciting because this is a new solution and they can relate. Um, one of our investors has been wanting to take advantage of cost share and government programs on their land, but has been daunted and hasn't really had the time to devote to it. So FarmRaise is a solution that they can relate to. It's something that they're curious about and they want to see succeed because they know it can impact farmers like themselves moving forward. In terms of institutional capital, we've seen interest from impact-oriented VC funds, from um, 
more software oriented or tech oriented VC funds, and then some ag tech funds as well. And the benefit of investing in something like farm raise to a traditional VC is that in agriculture, there really is such this big opportunity to digitize finance and offer fintech solutions. And it's not been explored to date. So it's a wonderful market to get into. It's big enough for venture-sized returns. And you're also driving a lot of impact. And so you're getting two things. One is the opportunity for financial return. And the second piece is the opportunity to say, you know, we've impacted farm profitability with this investment. We've impacted soil health adoption by enabling better access to capital by farmers. And then we have a few angel investors that are veterans in the agribusiness space or folks who have um, started their own tech companies delivering services and solutions to small to medium-sized businesses, similar to what we're doing at FarmRaise. And they just really see the power in digitized solutions for small to medium-sized businesses that don't really have the time and bandwidth to manage finances or navigate these landscapes. So um They've been awesome because they've been operators and have gone through a lot of the challenges we face and can provide a lot of input. It's been really, really wonderful to be able to learn from our angels as well. Amazing. Yeah, I love the I love the cross-disciplinary approach that all of your investors or that you get through all of your investors. I think that's super powerful. Uh, before we get to the end, I would be remiss if I didn't follow up on on some of your comments around soil health um, and discussing sustainable and regenerative practices at the farm level. And obviously, farm raise is focused first and foremost on farmer profitability, but you do have this focus on, on soil health and, and sustainable farming practices. Can you talk to me a little bit about interplay between those and farmer profitability? Absolutely. This is the good stuff, Nathan. This is like the juicy topic that um, has kept me super excited about this sector uh, and this issue. So soil health systems typically are cover cropping, no-till or reduced tillage, and then better nutrient management. So nitrogen efficiency, uh, variable rate technologies to better manage nutrients, etc. And these things require an initial investment to transition to. Cover crops to transition to those can be typically 10 to $50 per acre just for the seed. And then you've got to seed the cover crops and terminate them. So you're taking on an extra 15 to 30 bucks an acre for that. Um, and so all in all, you're seeing up to $78 per acre or more to implement cover cropping. And that cost will go down over time as you continue to perfect your, your system. And some farmers even start to grow their own cover crop seed on their farm and then use that. You're still going to have an initial outlay of capital. Same with no-till or nutrient management transitions. We actually estimate that if a farmer wanted to transition to soil health across the board, um, they'd have to pay $75 to $100 per acre for about five years to make that transition. And then most farmers say that they don't really see the, the return in that for eight to 10 years. So it's a longer term investment. But once they do see the return, it, it's worth it. And so there's that, there's that interesting piece of, okay, from years one to eight, how are you going to make sure that farmer is being incentivized to make that investment 
with the payback being that longer window. The profitability impacts, though, when they show up are significant. It results in increased yield resilience. So they've done studies that show that people who've adopted soil health systems are faring better during extreme weather events like drought or prevented plant situations with flooding in the Midwest. People who've planted soil health systems are not seeing the yield hit from those extreme weather events that their counterparts who do not have these soil health systems are facing. And so that alone is very convincing. And from a lending perspective, it's saying that you're reducing the risk of your loan because the farmer will be able to pay it back more reliably if their yield is not taking hits during these increasingly common extreme weather events. And then you also see reduced costs after you've adopted these systems where you don't have to spend as much on weed or pest management because the system itself is already doing that for you. Cover crops reduce the likelihood that weed seeds are going to take hold in your field because you've got constant cover. And you also see that they can help control pests through allelopathic impacts, which is you know when the roots in the soil put off chemicals that deter certain types of microbial growth and things like that. And so these systems are reducing your cost of farming and increasing your resilience overall. And sometimes there actually are small yield increases. So there's that profitability impact as well. Amazing. You're absolutely right. That is, uh, that is the good stuff um, and super exciting to think about how to enable that uh, transition and the challenges associated with it. Yeah. One question I wanted to get your perspective on, obviously there are funds and there are uh, new vehicles being set up to help with that transition. And you all are in contact and in some cases in partnership with some of those funds and at times have debated, yeah, setting up your own fund or, or capital source to finance some of that transition directly. Can you, can you talk about why, why you chose to take a different path and, and how FarmRaise plays a, a different and complementary role in the market uh, to some of those new solutions? Yes, this is a great question. And it's been so exciting to watch the developments in terms of different funds that are out there helping farmers adopt these systems, you know, replant capital, mad agriculture, are examples of institutions that are raising and have deployed capital to help farmers adopt more regenerative practices. And it's been wonderful to measure their progress, see them raise funds and actually start deploying that. We at Farm Raise, we have talked a lot about starting our own fund. And this is still a really appealing idea. The challenge is there's so much already available, whether that's government grants, conservation easements, state level funding, private capital. And there are so many great new entities like Replant or even like Steward um, that are coming up to support farmers with new private options. We don't necessarily feel like it's our job to create another mechanism for farmers. We see our job as simplifying and streamlining the process to take advantage of what's out there and helping farmers get clarity on what to pursue. That's ultimately why we've stayed away from starting our own fund. We also, it takes time to start your own fund. There's this long-term partnership work you have to do. There's regulation. There's a lot you have to take on. And we need to drive change today for farmers. And we know that we can. Uh, one of the big reasons is that 
only 10 to 15% of farmers today in the U.S. work with the USDA and access the funding from the USDA. So we see there being a really big opportunity to get the word out, to have uh, better clarity for farmers and get that small piece of the pie of farmers that are interacting with these programs to grow over time. Now, as that does grow, we're going to need more money. So we are working with these partners, these private providers, to make sure that we can connect farmers to them as well. And we're always thinking about opportunities to help direct capital towards the gaps we see, whether that's soil health or underserved producers who've been barred from financial access in the past. Um, There's also a really big gap right now in funding for early stage farms. And so thinking about, okay, as farm raise, how can we convince funders to start directing capital towards these underserved areas? That's an area we're really excited about and continue to work on today. That resonates so much uh, with us and our experience at Cross Boundary. While we have a few direct investment vehicles, the large majority of our work has been on the advisory side to help actually mobilize capital to underserved areas of the market because uh, we often see that there are funds, uh, whether those be concessional funds or commercial funds um, that have a mandate to invest in those, but the opportunities are either too early, like you're talking about with early stage farms, or the opportunity set is not necessarily big enough or believed to be not big enough to warrant proper investigation by those capital sources. So I I love that perspective. And I, I think you guys have been so thoughtful about how you approach the space there to drive impact. That's great to hear. Thank you for saying that. And I'm glad that you all share that philosophy. Yeah, it's great to find like-minded individuals in these spaces. (laughs) Yes. Before I let you go, I just want to ask, what is one or at least one thing that you would like investors to know about U.S. farmers you believe they generally don't? I love this question. And I am going to plug my co-founder, Jace, who is a, a farmer herself, grew up on a farm, and she actually wrote a uh, an article about this a few months ago that I share out <laughs> a lot. Um, so would would love to just shout that out. Uh, Jace Hafner on Medium, what every VC should know about farmers. Um, but what I would say in response to this today is that farmers are very tech savvy, and they are often the early adopters of new solutions. I just hope that they don't get underestimated and that if investors are seeking to work with farmers and help them access capital, that you take a very collaborative and thoughtful approach that you reach out to the farmer directly to talk with them and get to know them and that you spend some time getting to know their their seasonal cycles because that's going to impact their ability to engage with you and their willingness to take on something new. So being very cognizant not to approach the farmer during planting or harvest, um, but instead try to catch them when they're able to do their thinking and planning for the farm and, and put your ideas forth to them before you fully bake them out or implement a new funding vehicle. Take it to the farm first, learn about what their the constraints are that they face and build around that. I think that is super valuable perspective and uh, appreciate you referencing that article by Jace. I, I love it. Um, we'll link it in the show notes so that everybody can take a read. Thank you. 
But with that, thank you so much for coming on the show, Sammy. This has been wonderful. I think a beautiful perspective of U.S. farming um, and the challenges and needs there for all of our listeners. So uh, appreciate all your time. Absolutely, Nathan. Thank you for having us. And um, I hope you all have uh, such a great lineup with this podcast. I'm excited to listen to more of the featured speakers. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And good luck to you and the Farm Raise team. You've been listening to Unbounded, the podcast from Cross Boundary. Thank you so much to Kimberly Bays at Cross Boundary, our producer Ned Sedgwick, and Steph Masucci for the music.